Harry took the wand. He felt a sudden warmth in his fingers. He raised the wand above his head, brought it swishing down through the dusty air, and a stream of red and gold sparks shot out from the end like a firework, throwing dancing spots of light onto the walls. Haggard whooped and clapped, and Mr. Ollinander cried, Oh, bravo! Yes, indeed! Oh, very good! Well, well, well! How curious! How very curious! He put Harry's wand back into its box and wrapped it in brown paper, still muttering, Curious! Curious! Sorry, said Harry, but what's curious? Mr. Ollivander fixed Harry with his pale stare. I remember every wand I've sold, Mr. Potter. Every single wand. It so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather. Just one other. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother. Why, its brother gave you that scar. What's up, potheads? Welcome to the restricted section, in which a bunch of nerds with potty mouths reread the Harry Potter series for the umpteenth time and discuss how the story and its themes have stayed with a generation into adulthood. Thank you for listening. If you haven't done the reading, don't worry, we did it for you. Here's what we are talking about today. Get hype, all you 30 plus millennial muggles listening in tonight, because chapter five of The Sorcerer's Stone is the wizard's equivalent of an 80s movie makeover montage. In this chapter, Harry is pulled face-first into the wizarding world and literally through a brick wall to shop for school supplies in every wizard's favorite outdoor mall, Diagon Alley. After a dizzying trip into the depths of Gringotts Bank to get Hagrid's, quote, official Hogwarts business, end quote, and to pick up what we ignorant muggles can only describe as a buttload of inheritance money, Harry and Hagrid go shop to shop working through Harry's school list, Picking up things I would have traded my most prized Lisa Frank Trapper Keeper for in a heartbeat. Custom robes, check. An assortment of potions, check. Spellbooks galore, check. A snowy owl that will die for you, check. A wand that will save the world as we know it, check. A missed opportunity to shoulder check a Malfoy, not check. And exactly one fuck ton of foreshadowing, check times infinity. So join us muggles as we laugh, cry, debate, argue, and cheer but mostly seethe with a great and powerful envy as we make our way through Chapter 5, Diagon Alley. Do you guys feel good starting? Yeah. No. Everyone feeling good? <clears throat> yes. Okay, get it out, get it out. <coughs> What's up, gang? How's everyone doing today? Pretty good. Yeah, Pretty good. Good. Yeah, good. Hell yeah. I'm so glad you're here. It's Wednesday. I want to start the episode by apologizing to our listeners for getting so drunk last week. We're still working on fine-tuning a lot of things, including the level of alcohol that makes this episode great. So we're going to continue to fiddle with that, and it's only going to get better from here. So who's here today? Me, your host, Christina. And you know what? This episode is about Diagon Alley. And the very first thing that I would buy in Diagon Alley would probably be a fancy magical book that did something really stupid, like turn a different color in the sun or something. Cool. Uh, Grace is also here. I would buy a wand. First things first. Uh, I'm Andrew, and I think I would defy Hagrid's direct instructions and knowledge to Ron and buy a Niffler. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, I'm Haley, and uh, also a wand. Uh, what else would you get first? These practical Ravenclaws over here. <laughs> I want a wand, man. Um, uh, I'm Brooke, and bucking the practical Ravenclaw trend, I would buy a lot of magical candy. Mm-hmm. Fair. Uh, Mike, and uh, I gotta go with the common sense group here and say a wand. Come on, first things first. Yeah, man. I'm Mary Payton, and I would buy uh, two syllables. Head, wig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, you changed the story. I was really worried that you were... I, I got the head, which is an interesting thing to buy in Diagon Alley. <laughs> but you probably could. You, you do, definitely but could. probably great. You pr- uh, Nocturne Alley would be a better bet for a head. In general, mm-hmm. I really enjoy the fan theory that prostitutes in the Harry Potter world have access to Polyjuice Potion and can turn into anyone you want them to. I would like to change my answer. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be its own podcast. Yeah. Wow. People we fuck with Polyjuice Potion. Wow. Ooh. They charge a lot extra for that because it takes over a month to brew and it hurts like hell. Yeah, but also... It tastes nasty. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. It, it hurts for the user, not for the person paying for the... Once again, I'd like to change my answer. <laughs> Polyjuice prostitutes. I am <laughs> So... This episode, uh, this episode, and this chapter, we use these words synonymously. We're in diagonally, and I would like to lead with a question. Brooke, in a previous episode, you've mentioned that J.K. Rowling loves to describe people's eyes. What do you make of Ollivander's eyes in this chapter? So, an old man was standing there before them, his wide, pale eyes shining like moons through the gloom of the shop, That strikes me immediately as a golem description. See, it strikes me immediately as a cat, which if you bred a golem with a cat, that's where we end up with Mr. Ollivander. He gets more charming as the series goes on, but only marginally so. I do find him off-putting as a character in his first introduction. I think that's kind of the intent there. Like, this isn't necessarily like a negative Description, like, if the eyes were glinting, then maybe it would be negative, but, like, it's just meant to be off-putting. I think she uses eyes, the the description of eyes, to do whatever she wants with it, so I think in this case, it's meant to be mysterious and not really, we don't really know what to think of Mr. Ollivander. Except that it does say those silvery eyes were a bit creepy, direct quote. (laughs) Oh, that's why you read on. (laughs) So with Ollivander, I have had a thought ever since I read the last book regarding Ollivander and the wand specifically. It's so weird that you would choose that wand, yada, yada. My question is, once the Horcrux is removed, would that still be a great choice of a wand? Like, would that wand still be destined for Harry? Do you think the prophecy is more just the person or the actual fact that it is a piece of Voldemort's soul? I was thinking about that, too, as I was reading this. And I just figured that it it's like both both a nature and a nurture thing with the wand, even after his Horcrux gets destroyed and he doesn't have that connection anymore, it's still the wand he's been using for seven years and he's, like, learned. One of the things I find really interesting and I've always loved throughout the entire series is how she plays with this whole, like, Harry could be a bad guy kind of thing. And we kind of see that even in the first few chapters when he's talking to a snake and then as the series evolves, there's this whole thing and I think it's kind of cool how they... How they, how she slowly unrolls it more, and you start seeing that, especially with the wand, where we're now seeing connections, and I think that's so cool because as a teenager who doesn't like thinking like maybe I could be the good guy, maybe I could be a bad guy. I love my parents, fuck my parents, you know. So it really, I think, appeals that teenage mindset of like, which way could Harry go? 
I think the greatest heroes in a lot of stories are ones who see themselves as very possibly becoming the bad guy. And Harry, through throughout the books, doubts his goodness. Harry is the original Witcher. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> Harry has so many more feelings than that guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a question for Andrew. Andrew, how do you feel about your Diggleverse theory being 100% proved true? See, I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) I got distracted by Ollivander, but I did feel incredibly humbled to have, or not humbled, I felt incredibly happy to learn that. Unhumbled. Yeah, unhumbled was I to learn (laughs) that Diggle, not only do we see him and have him directly address himself, Harry references that I've seen that man before, and judging by Diggle's character as he goes on, I'm willing to bet that what it doesn't mean is that he's referencing a scene that we've already witnessed, but rather this is like a fourth occurrence of him being with Diggle, and he happens to see Diggle and recognize him this time. Two times he did not see him. That's how much Diggle loves Harry as he constantly is seeing him. Going back to the wand shop, I just want to draw everyone's attention very briefly to when Mr. Ollivander was talking about Harry's parents' wands. James's wand was excellent for transfiguration. Mm. He becomes an animagus. It says that Ollivander's was uh, founded in 382 BC. (laughs) Can you imagine the pressure to go into wand making? If your family had been doing it for about 2,000 years... (laughs) Um, imagine the pressure that Ollivander must feel apparently not having an heir. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. And he's, like, kind of too old to crank one out. Like, he's going to have to find an orphan. No, no way, dude. Uh, He can can crank one out. I believe it. I I don't like that. Who takes over Ollivander? You have to name an heir. It is the 90s. Maybe there's some grunge-loving Brit that's rebelling against his dad and is living with the muggles right now. But he'll he'll come home. He'll come home. (laughs) I love this. I love this theory. Let's, let's just put that more. Spice World. Spice World. Oh, my God. He was tempted by Spice World. Well, a few years later, but still, he was tempted by Spice World. So, speaking of pressure, right, how, how do you think Ollivander felt when Harry Potter walked into his store? First of all, that's pressure because Harry's famous and you want to make sure that he is set up for success. And then the wand that he wants is related to the wand that almost killed him. Like that, like, what would you do as a shopkeeper? I think he's stoked. I think um, in the in the movies, we see a side of him where he's a little bit panicked and worried. But in the book, he's nothing but excited when it's hard to pick out a wand. That's so true. So he says, um, but the more wands Mr. Ollivander pulled from the shelves, the happier he seemed to become. Um, tricky customer, eh? So, And I was ready for him to then get panicked when he couldn't find it. But he very quickly finds it and he's happy the whole time. I don't think, I think of Ollivander more as an artist than anything else. Like, and I think he has enough faith in his craft and in like the wands themselves. Cause the wands do choose the wizard. Like he doesn't have to pick out the right wand for Harry. He just has to wait for the right wand to present itself. And I think he just <laughs> has absolute like stone deep faith that like that wand is going to find him. He's never failed. It's kind of like, like a, like a shoe salesman. It's like, this one just doesn't fit. Yeah. You don't really have to know. Right. Yeah, it feels like he's, like, finally a challenge. Like, he's, like, been waiting for this. He's like, Harry, I thought I'd be seeing you soon. And he's like, yes, it's my time. Yeah, I mean, if you owned a Louis Vuitton store in downtown L.A. and Kim Kardashian came in, you really wouldn't be that shocked. He probably has, like, world-renowned wizards that come in all the time. And something I don't think we always look at, because we have the hindsight as readers and reading the book, 
maybe some people view Harry Potter not as this kid who has this ultimate power to fight Voldemort because many people think he's already dead. Maybe some people view him as a survivor. And there's like, here's this kid and he survived his thing and he's still a kid. And I have way more powerful wizards that come in all day. And although this kid did a great thing, he's still just a kid going off to school. That's true. Know? And also, he don't know if this wand works no good. Yeah. He doesn't have any background knowledge. Do you guys think Ollivander would be a Ravenclaw? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said that because I think he would be a Ravenclaw. <laughs> I think he likes the and cusp. I he likes he likes the the challenge, right, of having to like f- figure out the right wand. That's me. It's like a very Ravenclaw thing. Yes, but also ra- like like the thing with Ravenclaws is that we're all fucking weird, and like oh Ollivander God, goes out it. of his way to be weird. Like he, I, I think that most of this shit is like a conscious choice. Like the eyes aren't the eyes are genetic, but like the. <laughs> Like, looming out of the darkness to scare small children. Like, <laughs> I, I would do that. I feel like he was a Slytherin that really wanted to be in Ravenclaw. Hmm. Also, like, Harry is right now on the greatest LSD trip any 10-year-old can be on. Because, like, he woke up right now. He just got exposed to all this. Everybody's weird. Nobody's a normal human being. Like, we don't really know. Maybe this guy is pretty chill and wizarding standards. But I just think with Harry's perspective, it's kind of a bad perspective to base like, is he a weird dude or not? Because at the end of the day, he's a 10-year-old kid whose literal mind is being blown. He didn't even know dragons existed until an hour ago. That's actually one of the reasons I fucking hated Harry in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Literally, he's been, like, cool, calm, collected, and just kind of taking things as they come with a little bit of sass and a lot of bit of care. And then all of a sudden, he is just the dumbest person the first thing he expresses actual surprise about is financial institutions literally the first time he's excited curious wizards have banks (laughs) thanks harry and then he gets equally like goblins like financial goblins are his sticking point he's accepted everything up till now and then he proceeds to ask dumbass questions for the rest of the goddamn chapter they're sitting in the Part at Green Gods, and he's like, I can never remember which is the lag mites and which is the lag tights. It's like, yeah, not now. <laughs> I think maybe they just needed a moment where Hagrid, just for a split second, like tells Harry to shut up. <laughs> no, I, I gotta argue against this. You're saying Harry's the dumbest character. Hagrid is actually the worst character in this thing because he's walking around basically telling everybody, FYI, I'm on a secret mission. Big deal. <laughs> Dumbledore just sent me. Can't tell you, but I'm going he's here. Just- Harry. No, no, he's, he's just telling an entire bar full of people, oh, and then he walks no, in the bar, right, no, and he's also like, "Oh, by the way, everybody, Harry fucking Potter." Wait, is here. wait, wait, Mary Payton, will you tell us what we're drinking today? Sure, we're drinking the Vault Seven Thirteen, which is Seven Up uh, vodka and three cherries. I love it. I can talk about Hagrid being probably a little bit dumb. Hagrid is walking through the middle of a train station. And loudly says the, crikey, I'd like a dragon. And that ends up being massive foreshadowing for someone listening to them and following them from the get-go. And I think that even at this early stage, it seems like she's hinting that they're kind of being tailed by members of kind of like Voldemort's fan club. Yeah, that part is major foreshadowing, I think in like three different ways, if she meant it. Because Harry, did you say there are dragons at Gringotts? And there ends up being a dragon. And, but then also, Harry has to fight a dragon, essentially, in the fourth one. 
So it's like three times foreshadowing. That's called, um, is it Chekhov's gun, right? If you yeah. say that there's yeah. a dragon, the, the dragon has to appear. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there's even the dragon in this book, Norbert. Um, Norberta. Oh, right. I what? forgot. Yeah. You the forgot girl. there's a dragon in this? Norberta? Yeah, later yeah. Charlie Weasley is like, it's a girl, right? Yeah, yeah. It's oh, yeah it turns out Norbert's a girl. Um, I forgot about that part. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so I don't know if they're necessarily being tailed. I kind of always got the impression that like wanting a dragon is just a thing that Hagrid talks about sometimes. And like when he got drunk with Quirrell at the Hogshead, not realizing it was Quirrell, he mentioned something because they were talking about a dangerous beast. So like it's gonna come up. So this chapter is called Diagon Alley, but it is a long chapter. And I, I don't want us to skip the first few pages where they wake up in the cabin and... Hagrid is just like so comfy cozy in this cabin, like really deeply. Something that I noticed in this beginning part is that we, last episode we were talking about how the fuck did Hagrid get here, and we arrived at Port Key, which I definitely thought was like the strongest theory. But he says he flew, which I don't get it. How else would you explain a port key to an eleven-year-old who has no frame of reference? Oh my god! Like I, he did technically. You're so right. <laughs> I I he also poofed. saw flying as confirmation of port key. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You totally read it differently than me, but I, but I think you're right because I mean, what you're gonna be like? Oh, I touched a boot and yeah. it made me go to another <laughs> place. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the only thing Hagrid did in this entire chapter to kind of like ease the transition for Harry, like. <laughs> I flew. This is probably a pretty complex thing, but dragons and monetary systems and <laughs> things like that, not complex for a 10-year-old, but Porky, too complex. Well, I, I think, actually, I, I kind of disagree, because I think the Hagrid's been just spitting everything out. He, there is no filter there, and I think that for someone who grew up in the magical world, has been around it all the time, that would just be that would just be a phrase that everyone knows. I don't. I think what he's actually referencing is whether he still has it later on and just never speaks of it, which is possible. I think he still either still has or went back and retrieved Sirius's uh, motorcycle because that port key, I think for the movies, they kind of make it the, do the flying looking thing. But I think all that it really says uh, with the description of port keys later on is the pull behind the navel and kind of fast moving. I always imagine it more like being sucked through some magical dimension or rip in space time. A wormhole. Yeah, I, 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 I don't get flying from the way that, at least, at least the way I read it. I've never, I've never gotten flying from it. But then where is the motorcycle? On the island. No, because he, he rose off. And it's a loud thing. Like, we hear yeah. it coming in the first chapter. I feel like we would have heard and noticed, and then he wouldn't have abandoned. Said well, he, if, he would not have abandoned. If he was yeah. following the car, though, the Dursley's car on the flying motorcycle, he would have gotten to the car and then taken the rowboat. I, I don't know. Like I said, that's just the way that I read it. So I think that, um, and I might be misremembering here, but I think Sirius's motorbike is in his vault at Gringotts. But I have another question regarding uh, transportation. How the fuck are the Dursleys supposed to get off the island? <laughs> <laughs> I wondered that too, and it, then I was like, sucks to suck. It doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, but it kind of does, though, because here's the thing. At the end of the chapter, when Hagrid like lets Harry off at the train nearest his house to go back to the fucking Dursleys, who's home? And you, you know Harry doesn't have his own key. And they don't have cell phones, which I, I don't want to sound like a grandpa being like, you know, when I was there, right, we didn't have cell phones. But I think it's important to reiterate, they did not fucking have cell phones. They would have 
no way off that island except for the fittest person to swim to shore. I'm so sorry, Petunia. Although maybe <laughs> Vernon would be the most buoyant. <laughs> Dang, I never thought about that. Uh, so I, I think I just think Hagrid is such a genius character for J.K. My girl, J.K. to have created for especially the beginning of these books, but for the whole thing because he not only tells Harry what the wizarding world believes at this point like last time we were talking about um when he explained what happened to harry but also he's the kind of character that just tells harry whatever he asks a a very great uh contrast to the dursleys who didn't tell him anything and hagrid's just open to tell him everything Uh, i think that's such a great uh tool for jk to use to open all of her readers up to this wizarding world. Definitely a trick in writing is make sure your protagonist knows nothing. So that way we can explain everything to your reader. I think in general, the idea of opening is so prevalent within this chapter. We literally have, we start with Harry just for a moment, imagining that he's still locked in the cupboard where he's been his entire life, but the magical world has literally broken through that wall and now he cannot go back. And so, and then from then on, it's just, openings after openings after openings we're opening doors into the leaky cauldron we're watching bricks shift to reveal an entire magical shopping center this whole chapter is just opening doors and that children is a motif with the opening of the the wall into diagon alley do you think there's some really stuck up family who decades or maybe even centuries ago it was their relative that created the charm that does the opening to Diagon Alley. Do you think that's a thing? Like, yeah, I'm a Humphrey. Do you know the Humphreys? You know, the like ones who... Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the British Ministry of Magic has those, like, historical marker placards like yeah. we do here in America around town. We live in Richmond. It's a really historic city. Michael cannot pass one of those without reading it. Oh, same. They put it here to give me knowledge. No, on foot, but also in the car, like, pull over to the side of the road. I put people's lives in danger. Michael must <laughs> read a historical placard. Okay, I don't go that far. They do at least have that concept, because in Book 7, when they go to Godric's Hollow, there is there's a monument to the Potter family and also a plaque outside their destroyed house. And people wrote kind messages on it. We'll get to that in six years. Is there something we said that, is it possible that magic spells, depending on what they are over time, get stronger? Like, if you you cast a spell, like, in 3 BC... Would it not be super, super stronger? Is that not a possibility? You know, like it's definitely it's something that's not really explored, but it really is the concept of do spells age or do because we never know if they get weakened. Some do, like potions, they get wicked weak. But like, do spells do they get stronger? Do they get weaker? Or do they stay the same? Yeah, there's a motif in fantasy. No, is it a motif? <laughs> there's a trope in fantasy where. When someone dies, their magic dies too. I think that the physics of magic is something that can be hotly contested and it's not always clear. Do I need to remove him? Dante brought a shrimp into the room that he is just going ham. <laughs> Why does he do this? He like is so sleepy the whole yeah. rest of the day. He's so stoked that we're all here. I'll be honest, it's way more interesting than your English stuff. <laughs> Wait, I need I need to God, he's so cute though. Look at him. He he's got it. So hype about his little shrimp. This is now the Dante Shrimp podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dante Shrimp updates. Guys, I can't take that from him. He's so cute. We're just gonna deal with it. Okay, we let, okay. let me sit back down. I have the noisiest chair. Was anyone else surprised that the owl expected payment? 
Yeah, I was wondering about the logistics of that. First of all, no offense, Hagrid, I was surprised that he gets the Daily Post. Like, mm. I was I was surprised that he receives the newspaper every day. I don't know. He lives in a really isolated place where he's surrounded by kids. Like, I probably wouldn't want to know. But they also don't have TV in this world. and Or cell phones, or as, as we've discussed. Or cell phones are like any other form of medium. They don't seem to have radios. So, like, this would be uh, Twitter. So I I don't, I think we think of newspapers as like a fancy person thing because it like (laughs) costs money and like who sits down to read the newspaper. But I think it's the only way to get news in this society. So it's kind of a opt in or be completely isolated deal. Yeah. But I think you raise a good question, Grace. What kind of a subscription is this where he pays daily? You think he would be able to get a discount by paying for the year ahead of time if he's doing it every day? I was thinking it was more like a tip. For the people that deliver it. Or for the owl. The owl has a nest or he's <laughs> the Guys, we all the know that, that We all know owls have nest eggs, okay? That's just, <laughs> just his retirement. <laughs> no, I like that one. He's yeah. safe. He's safe. That, that's brilliant. He's safe. He's safe. Um, I'd like to just take an appreciation moment for J.K. Rowling's beautiful author name to book title. Uh <laughs> selections here. We've got uh, Magical Theory by a man named Waffling. Uh, We've got Transfiguration by a guy named Switch. We've got Herbs and Fungi by someone named Spore. We've got Drafts and Potions by Jigger. And of course, your classic Fantastic Beast written by Newt. And for extra credit near the end of the chapter, we get a Book of Revenge written by Vindictus. So the Vindictus book, like, does anyone else notice that Hagrid basically has to drag Harry away from a Defense Against the Dark Arts book? And we had talked in a previous episode about the Dursleys potentially being worried that Harry was going to immediately learn magic and seek revenge. And he tries to do that less than <laughs> less than a day into the magical world. He's like, how can I fuck up Dudley's life? Well, you know what? Maybe they should have treated him nicer. I, I have never noticed this before, but I, I want to get you guys' thoughts on it. So when Harry and Hagrid are talking about, like, the school houses, and Hagrid tells him, like, there's not a single witch or wizard who went bad that wasn't in Slytherin, you know who was one. And Harry goes, oh, you know who was at Hogwarts? And Hagrid says, years and years ago, does Hagrid fucking know that the guy who framed him and got him expelled was Voldemort? I would like to return to the question that we've already asked way too many times. We're only on chapter five. How much has Dumbledore been sharing about really real and important things that affect other people's lives? It's hard to know at any given point. I don't know if it's even a Dumbledore question, though, because like Hagrid might just know like Hagrid is part giant. So like he's older than a lot of like he's older than he looks and he's older than a lot of people expect him to be. And he might be, like, one of the people who remembers, like, oh, yeah, that that used to be that dude. And, like, God, imagine if he did know and tries to, you know, go to the Ministry of Magic and be like, hey, I got expelled wrongly because my fucking classmate was Voldemort. Can I have my fucking wand back? And they were like, no, because you're part giant. Fuck you. These are some really good questions. Let's try to remember to bring this up in a year when we're talking about it in Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totes. How do muggle-born witches and wizards recognize the leaky cauldron? Like, like, how do they get to Diagon Alley if, like, the people they're with, maybe their parents, like, can't recognize it? I feel like they probably get an additional letter. Yeah, or I was going to say m- additional instructions or something. Additional instructions or 
I mean, I think you would have to send a person to a, a cognizant, lucid adult to explain. If my parents got a letter telling them that I was magic and I, they needed to send me away at 11 years old, they they wouldn't have done it. Yeah, you just need you need a home visit. For you that. need a yeah. home visit for I that, and like so. a, a demonstration. I you know, so. so I think and Hermione never addresses this. But how did they get her to school? I, Social I, workers. I think there's a point where Hermione addresses it. I'll be honest, I cannot remember how it went, but I am ninety nine percent sure there's a point where she says that something about getting her letter. But I don't think she ever says anyone was with them. I just want to. I want to let all our listeners know that we have a lot of Ravenclaws at this table. But Haley has been full Hermione mode this whole episode. Shut up! I want a brief shout out to Haley's like encyclopedic memory. Seriously, like yes. round of applause. You remember everything. <laughs> you can't see it, listeners, but I'm bowing. <laughs> you always have something smart to say. So, so what? What, what smart thing do you have to say? I completely forgot. <laughs> Oh, okay. So two things. She does mention that she got her letter. She's just excited about it. She goes into no further details. But her parents do, after her first year, take her to Diagon Alley because uh, the Weasleys run into them in book two. So they let muggles in. Mm -hmm. Well, you'd have to assume that there's some department of the ministry that would do onboarding. That If anything, it's probably a letter that they get saying that you've been invited to uh, apply for this prestigious school or something like that. And then you meet up with them. I was just going to say, I think Hermione is the type of person who would have known she was getting her letter before it happened. I feel like she would have, if anything slightly magical happened when she was growing up, she would have been like, how do I research this? Let's dive deep in... Wait, what year is this? It's in the late 80s and yeah. early 90s. Dudley has a the, computer. This would be the late 90s. Yeah. Okay. Oh, because Harry was born in the late 80s. Yes. So two things, though. I agree with Andrew on that, because what we saw from the Fantastic Beast movies is is when magic is a pre- uh, repressed at a youthful age, it can have dangerous consequences. So I feel like if someone is given a notice and they're not able to, especially if they're muggle-born and they're not able to explore it, it now becomes a danger if they do not have access to the wizarding world. And then the second thing is, I forgot... <laughs> Wow. I was going to say 1980 is when Harry Potter was. Oh, so that that brings up a thing, though. So no, 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 no. That's my thing. So in Europe in the 90s and all the way in the early 2000s, since uh, internet was dial-up, you had to pay by the minute for internet access. And I lived in the Netherlands during the 90s, and it was a big deal. You were only allowed to use the computer for 30 minutes at the school one time a week. So even if they did have a computer, internet access was not cheap, and it was not easy to use. So I really think that, like, Hermione would actually be limited. Like, it... You know, it is the 90s, you have the internet, but it's not as accessible as it is today. I think this is a really interesting conversation. So it's really evident from the whole rest of this series that Hermione is incredibly comfortable with book research, the way we were all trained in a world before the internet was really a thing. And so and so, when these weird things started happening to her, she would probably go to these books to try to figure out why. And that it, in itself opens the question how much are wizards able to monitor the kind of information that muggles perceive and then ultimately publish about them? Would you find any inkling of facts? And now I'm spiraling because we live in a world where wizards are a concept. Where did that come from? Are they real? Did we miss our letters? Oh, no. (laughs) So there's actually early depictions in Greek and Roman art of Jesus doing his miracles with a wand. Wow. Wow. They say they, and by they I mean fantasy authors, say that you need a 
Um, conduit. A conduit. Thank you. It's that's Gandalf has his staff, right? You can do magic without your conduit, but it really helps to focus your energy. It's usually a phallic symbol. Oh my god, you're yep. so right. And if you have a phallus, you just don't even need a wand. Yeah, that's like, because <laughs> magic comes out of the penis. Well, <laughs> Which I is mean, why I'm so muggle. And yes. that's also why we're all not pregnant, thank god. Yeah, I mean, like, you go back to, <laughs> you can go back to, like, the sword and the stone, and you can see that too, where it is this symbol of, like, power is derived from an object, and an object that is within the hand, like, because it is the form of action. So I agree with that. I think also with the wizards specifically as they are in the Harry Potter universe, there's always a slight sense of arrogance about them that I've always thought is really funny because they always have the superiority about themselves where, yes, we're very strict with the statue of secrecy, but if, and if something major goes on, we'll interfere, but they also kind of always hold themselves at this standard because they have magic. And that's kind of what breeds into these far, you know, extremists like the Death Eaters that we have magic, we should be on top. And of course, the ultimate irony in it is that they have magic, yes, but the convenience of our modern society in some ways is actually more convenient and, uh, you know, more greater in magnitude than theirs is. Just because we had to keep going and they kind of, it seems, have reached a peak where they are completely satisfied with the way that their everyday life is convenience level and stuff. Uh, speaking of magical, arrogant people, we get introduced to Malfoy in this yes, chapter. Yes. Thank you. I I would love to talk about Malfoy because I was thinking to myself that I asked Mary Payton to do the reading for this episode, and as I was reading the well, we all did the reading, but do the intro, <laughs> um, and I was thinking, wow, it's so perfect because we meet our first Slytherin. I was wondering how you would feel about it, Tina, because some of the first words out of his mouth are, imagine being in Hufflepuff, I believe. Yeah, um, <laughs> we were actually talking about this at work a little bit today. Good. We don't want you. <laughs> Please leave. You have bad vibes. His, I mean, I, I do really enjoy our entire introduction to him. The pale, pointed face standing on a footstool just being pinned is one of the most just, like, nose up, sniveling little boys, like immediate introductions you will ever get. I, I think also one of the things with him saying I would leave, it points to one of the great weaknesses of Slytherin's house, which is this idea that to be what a stereotypical Hufflepuff would be a charming, like, you know, humble, kind person. Like you guys, giving, you know me. <laughs> yeah, and still it would be like a humble, humble, kind person. Um, that's that's nothing but weakness to someone who's so extremely violently Slytherin like Malfoy. Why would you be so weak as to be nice to people? Zero-sum game is life, you know? Um, that reminds me of that line in, I don't remember if it's in the books, to be perfectly honest, verbatim, but I vividly remember it from the films. Book five, where Harry is fighting Voldemort in the um, Ministry of Magic, and he's like, you'll never have love! Oh, friendship! <laughs> and it's such a weak argument. Um, but that's what Hufflepuff's about, so maybe there's some strength in it. For the people listening at home, oh. Tina is wearing... Oh, my God, that's a loud <laughs> fart. Um, you can send it to me publishing it in here, so... Um, Tina is wearing... It's gonna be even worse. A Snoop Dogg's... Puff Puff Pass shirt, which like Hufflepuff Puff Pass on Malfoy. <laughs> no, can we just say? Can we just say Hufflepuff is the stoner, the stoner group? Oh, man. we've like, said that. Yeah. We hey, I'm that. the only Hufflepuff in the group. 
So anyways, Hufflepuff <laughs> is the stoner. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Remember we said we were going to cure Dudley's attitude with weed. Okay. I did also think it was interesting that the first person Harry compares Malfoy to is Dudley. And they're very different characters in terms of the way they're introduced. Dudley is stupid, big boy, real brash. And Malfoy is this, like, quiet, tiny, like, refrained, pointed individual, but their souls are so inherently rotten in both contexts that it's an immediate comparison, even though the character introduction is very different. Can we take a break? Yeah. Yeah. I just have to piss. We're back from break. I made a note somewhere along reading this chapter that just says, is Hagrid okay, drunk, sad, magic man, question mark? And I cannot figure out what it's referencing. And I think it was him getting out and being like, hey, Harry, I know you're deeply lost in this world of magic, but I didn't like that cart ride. Do you mind if I slip off and get smashed in the leaky cauldron where I am a deeply known regular? Um, Drunk, sad, magic man? (laughs) <laughs> is, that, is that a is that a heart song? <laughs> yes, um, I I like that. Um, I think he just it's just showing that I think it's just juxtaposing he and Harry in that moment. Like Harry is so um, into this new world that he is unfazed by this dizzying dive into Gringotts Bank, and Hagrid is not. Um, I think Hagrid is just like we've said before, pretty oblivious about really how it. How to take care of any sort of creature. And also, Hagrid's a tank, because if I'm nauseous from a crazy roller coaster, I don't want alcohol. No. What does it take to get Hagrid drunk? That's my question. Okay. Oh, it happens. Oh, it happens ask, later. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it happens later, but this just goes back to my point. Why would you send Hagrid on a secret <laughs> mission? This just goes back to show that he is literally the worst, like, secret errand boy. He's the worst, but also kind of the best. Because we learn later on that most spells just kind of bounce off Hagrid. Mm. I would think in an absolute worst case scenario, there are very few people that you would rather have carrying a package than a full speed running away from a group of people that are four feet shorter than him, Ruby is Hagrid. Like, Hagrid could pick up Harry and defend him bodily like a suit of armor. (laughs) Okay, but like, that doesn't make sense because Dumbledore is a very intelligent person and Dumbledore would probably choose anonymity over strength in that environment. He's walking to a crowded pedestrian area with Harry Potter. And I do believe he is actually being tailed because the fact is Malfoy is there and Malfoy, as we see in later books, is kind of used and kind of oblivious sometimes to his own father and parents' things. So who's to say the Death Eaters aren't there? And they're like, well, time to bring the kids along. Well, the thing with Dumbledore is that like, for all that he does engage in a lot of covert shit, his main thing is just keeping people on their toes all of the time. So, like, on the one hand, yeah, Hagrid's not great with subtlety. He kind of gets starstruck. He, like, he, when he's in proximity to fame, he cannot keep his fucking mouth shut. But also, what the fuck are you going to do to him? He's Hagrid. We, we know that the common person can recognize Harry really easily. So the common matter, wizard. The common wizard, yes. So... If that's the case, then you would want to send the person who can the easy... Because think about it. It's not an easy thing to take someone away from a group of adoring admirers. And it sounds in the scene like Hagrid just kind of is like, well, time to go, and uses his mask to clear a path and move Harry. 
Well, let's look at that scene real quick where they the first enter the leaky cauldron. Let's just get some pastry ASMR. <laughs> um, I feel like Hagrid is uh, very much very self-important. He's super hyped, not only to be escorting Harry Potter, which he does take as a moment of personal um, acclaim, I guess, but also to be to know someone else in the bar, and that's Professor Quirrell. And to be able to make that introduction between a professor and Harry Potter seems to be a thing that he really relishes. I, which now, actually, Andrew, after you said that, I actually totally agree because of the whole Quirrell thing. Because no wonder Quirrell, he, if he is under spell of Voldemort at the time, or he isn't, he's he's not going to do anything with Hagrid right there in front of him, willing to be able just to punch him in the face quicker than he can pull his wand out. Especially since I think most people, most wizards probably know that Hagrid is the right-hand man of Dumbledore. So Dumbledore is not going to send him out with the most important wizard in their world without knowing that Hagrid can protect them. So, like, kind of going back to Quirrell, like, he is at this point a follower of Voldemort, but I think it's important to note that, like, Voldemort isn't, like, leeching off him yet. That doesn't happen until he fucks up. Oh, because, because, correct me if I'm wrong, because we haven't delved into it yet, but Voldemort comes back from Albania with Quirrell, but it's only when Quirrell starts having trouble that Voldemort physically adheres himself to the yes. noggin. It's it's only after Halloween when Quirrell fails to get through the trapdoor. So, is is Voldemort, like, in a jar? Like, Ursula is poor yeah, unfortunate souls right now? How like, what? Where? Because Quirrell says so. Because... I think uh, Voldemort says so. so. Someone is like, blah, blah, blah. And then he started fucking up. That would be a Voldemort quote. And then I went, <laughs> and then I went in his noggin. If somebody explains that at some I point. I don't remember that part. I think for most of us, a lot of Harry Potter canon is latent knowledge that we're like, I don't know where it comes from, but I know it. It's I know it's true. true. I know it's going to be true. I'm just well, sure. I, know, I know the conversation you're speaking of. Two, two parts to it, though. I'm not sure if it's actually in the book or if it's just in the movie. But even beyond that, we know that the unicorns are getting attacked way before Halloween. So if the unicorns are getting attacked and he's getting the blood, what is the blood going to if not to bring back the but, form of Voldemort? But that's Shadow Mort. <laughs> Voldemort is a like shadow a, of mortar my Voldemort, favorite video game yeah. <laughs> Voldemort is like there he does have this like definite point where he's like a half embodied spirit like thing before he like fully adheres he, he says um, I was less than a, I was less than a spirit though he says I was less than he a ghost says, like I have life a curse life no that's about the um sorcerers <laughs> no no that, that was about the unicorn yeah. blood but that yeah. but it was a centaur saying oh yeah yeah, yeah. okay wait back but, it up he says I have life. A <laughs> ghost life. That but was Ferenz. Yes. Yeah, yeah Ferenz, yeah, my boy. What Voldemort does say at some point, it might not be in this book even, he says, I was less than, I, I remember specifically the line, I was less than a ghost, or something to that effect. Right, but. And ghosts can't even interact with the human world, so he wouldn't be able to drink hu- okay. the blood of the unicorn. First off, there are literal ghost professors in this universe, so ghosts for sure can interact he with the human He doesn't know he's world. a ghost. I don't well, think they can well, touch. He doesn't touch he anything, don't. though. He flies through the walls. Well, he doesn't. Physically interact. But I'm right. saying physically interact. Okay. But if you can't drink, if you can't physically interact, you can't drink. But w- at what point does the unicorn blood come into play? Because if Quirrell needs the unicorn blood to sustain the additional life force sucking, leeching from his body, that I to me it felt like there was a humanoid figure in that cloak. It's not like 
ghosty Voldemort boy would be like, oh, I'm a human. Like, why would he do that? So I think it was Quirrell for sure in that cloak. And if you'd like, we can discuss that further when we get to that scene. So something also, too, going back to Quirrell, it goes back to, like, her obsession with eyes because it talks about his twitching eye. And it just goes back to, like, there's a lot of actual foreshadowing of, like, Oh, there's something suspicious about this, bro. Further foreshadowing, only one of his eyes is twitching. Voldy eyes. The Voldemort eye. <laughs> I think we're all missing the detail that isn't in this chapter, which oh. is that when Quirrell is introduced, he's just a pale young man made his way forward very nervously. He's not wearing the turban. Interesting. You're right, because you would note that. You would note that. I would agree that he isn't probably wearing the turban at this point. He's just pale and nervous. And he's clearly had some experience with Voldemort at this point, which has altered him substantially, but I, we, we're not at full conjoined. Also, another detail that doesn't exist is Harry's scar doesn't hurt. And... That's a great detail. That's another what is not in this chapter. And therefore, we know that that's a... a a thing that automatically happens when he's close enough to And more. really, even if it's just a writing tool and there's not time to deal with that detail in this scene, the fact of the matter is that that's how it is now. Yeah. So we know our girl JK likes to like think things through and kind of put things ahead of them. I mean, come on, I nerded out when they brought the whole Fantastic Beast thing. But oh, yeah. uh, I also do believe she's not a perfect writer and she's not a perfect uh, writer when it comes to forming a plot that is sometimes cohesive and doesn't have holes to it. <laughs> so who's to say that at this point, as she's writing it, she hasn't figured it out? The only thing I can think of, though, is, is that if she had a good editor, they would have gone back and been like, no way, man, like, his this kid's, like, scar's got to be hurting. Because I just don't mm-hmm. think, I just, I think sometimes she thinks about key things and puts that in, because that's what makes the story so good with foreshadowing. But I also think sometimes, man, she just doesn't think it through, and she's just like, oh, well, that'd be cool. Is it in the book or just in the movie that Harry Scar hurts at the feast when he looks, he thinks he's looking at Snape, but it turns out that Quirrell is right next to Snape? I think that that is a movie thing, although I, yeah, I, I honestly can't remember. I'm just. Although I may be wrong, I think that that's one of those things that films have to do where they make it easy for the mm-hmm. least common denominator to know what's going on in the movie. <laughs> And that's why I love the movies. <laughs> but also, too, if you were, like, working for Voldemort, wouldn't you be in a bar getting shit-faced? Because that's where I'd be. I'd be like, Whoa, oh, nice yeah. Be like, I have a headache. I'm, I'm going to need some tequila shots. I have a twitching eye. Like, chicks don't dig me. I'm going to go get shit-faced. <laughs> I, think, um, I think, first of all, that Andrew might have a point about the Halloween thing just being in the movie. I think Voldemort might have latched onto Quirrell to go to Hogwarts, because, like, getting into Hogwarts would be hard for for him in his current state and like that's a good way to hide secondly i do think that um harry's scar hurting when he uh looks at snape at the table and thinks it's snape making a scar hurt i think that is in the book because there's a detail of like the creepy guy who's talking to professor quarrel and he makes eye contact and he's like who is that guy i think i think his scar might hurt in that scene we're gonna get there so soon so we'll revisit that I apologize in advance because I know the crowd that I'm speaking to, but what is the basis of their monetary system? We've got seven, so we've got a galleon, 17 silver sickles to a galleon, and then 29 nuts to a sickle. Our number, our math system, our monetary system is a base 10 system. What is the base of a wizarding money system? Weight? 
nonsense. Nonsense? These are all good guesses. Guess. Nonsense is what I would say. I think JK just wants to like create this like wizarding world that's like goofy. Topsy turvy. Yeah. I am not clever enough, nor do I have the absolute encyclopedic knowledge that Haley does. Maybe she can shine a light. But I do know that in some of the versions of it's either fan, uh, the Fantastic Beasts physical book, not the play, but the physical book, or uh, uh, Quidditch Through the Ages, they actually do a breakdown of pounds to galleon slash sickle slash nuts. Because um, they say an amount that was raised by them, and then they convert it and they say for you muggles that would be X amount. The problem is it doesn't work well because of the fractions that are involved with sickles and nuts. Uh, something I don't think anybody really here knows a lot about, but J.K. Rowling actually was very good friends with Warren Buffett, and oh you see gosh. that in play, uh, really, <laughs> with the construct of interest. And also, yeah. I think the book is a very interesting critique of a pre-Euro Europe, actually. So I think I think this is I think the structure of monetary is actually anti to the construct of the Euro. So I think I I get the sense that you're joking, but I think that actually makes a good point because <laughs> I get this weird well, feeling that I, I you're was joking. not joking. I think I'm the smartest person in the room. I think I <laughs> so I so we've talked about this, I think, in a couple of the previous episodes, but like there is a definite element of satire to the wizarding world that's kind of lampooning British society. And I think one of those things is the monetary system, because like like we use a base 10 monetary system, but we don't like we don't use base 10 measurements. Like, but we got our like shitty non-base 10 measurements from fucking Britain. Like, they just come up with their own rules that make no sense for no reason other than we're Britain and we don't want to do it like France. And I kind of get the sense that it's like this is kind of making fun of that attitude. Yet stone is still a concept. Mm. You weigh X number of stone. You know, stone. You know, the stones. <laughs> Okay, I know it's going to hurt a lot of people's feelings. It's a children's book. And, and I do, no, 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 no. Michael, no, if, that's no, no. The, if that's the thesis, then why No, 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 just follow me on this one. Follow me on this one. Because the audience is directed to a younger audience, think about when you're a kid and your parents are like, I'm going to give you an allowance. And you're like, my parents gave me 25 cents for taking out the trash. Okay, um, first of all, you need to talk to Bernie Sanders because uh, that's not a livable wage, bro. Um, and so I think as a child... If you're reading this, it allows you to kind of take whatever you want from it, whatever value you want from it, because most kids aren't able to take up a value. It's a known fact that children in their minds obviously develop slower, but our ability to take value within a quantitative ability is actually limiting. Most people don't become really good mathematicians until they're in their 20s. Oh, thank God. <laughs> There's still, still two so, years And most people don't know how to save Or do their finances until they're all dead And like I said that's why it appeals to children And I'm a 32 year old child And I still am like wow that's a lot of uh, That's a lot of stones And that's why we do. I do our household finances Just completely But yeah I think that's something to take into account That it is trying to create that imagination And swirl that child's mind And I actually think it does a brilliant job of it Grace, is there anything in this chapter that we haven't talked about yet that you feel like we should delve into a little bit deeper? Because it's about time to start wrapping it up. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, let me see here. Oh, well, we kind of talked about Coral already, but I just wanted to go back to basics a little bit on that. Basically, where Hagrid is talking about, like... That something happened to Quirrell. Mm-hmm. Like, in the we, Black Forest. In the Black Forest. Which, by the way, is for sure haunted. I think that's globally acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says, they say he met vampires in the Black Forest, forest, and there was a nasty bit of trouble with a hag. Never been the same since. So I just didn't know what everybody thought of that. Are we to assume that that was Voldemort 
adjacent? Or? So here's the thing is, I know for sure the Black Forest is in Germany. Does it go somewhere else? Because they also know he was in Albania. Like, I think, I don't, I'm not sure exactly where or who this knowledge comes from, but like later it's for sure that he was in Albania. I just realized that the Black Forest and the Dark Forest are different, <laughs> different forests. Wait, did it say Dark Forest? It says this? Black. Oh, what's the Dark Forest? Dark Forest dark is forest. the one on the border of Hogwarts. Oh, yeah, Black the Black Forest, forest is, is in, in Germany. Germany that's and real. I just realized those were different. And it's, it's for sure haunted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We're also assuming that Pearl went out and simply ran into Voldemort. There's every possibility that he could have gone out starting to do the study and gets deeper and deeper into these dark elements of vampires and hags and all that type of shit. And he didn't have to just stay in one area for the entire year that he was gone. It says he was gone for a year. He could have started there and his trip could have taken him to Albania where he ended up upon Voldemort. For sure. But I think we're just talking about what information is he giving people? Who knows what at this point? I th- I think it's possible that, like, he started off studying, like, vampires and hags. Like, he was on sabbatical. He was... This isn't, like, some of the extended material, but Quirrell was originally the um, muggle studies teacher, went on sabbatical for, like, a year, came back to teach Defense Against the Dark Arts because they were desperate. Um, So I think it's possible, uh, based kind of off what Andrew said, like, that he was studying dark creatures... And the dark creatures were somehow, like, aware of Voldemort's presence because we find out in books like 6-7 that, like, Voldemort, like, courted them. Like, giants and vampires, like, he brought them over to his side to, like, kind of serve as his grunts a little bit. Um, Because he's definitely, like, a wizard supremacist, but, like, he was able to kind of appeal to the dark creatures, so-called, because they were being oppressed by the fucking wizard governments. Or... Snakes. Also that. Well, and also, if, if you think about it, a, a parallel you could make to it happening in our world would be if a college professor went off and a sociology professor went off to Europe and came back and was secretly holding the great-grandson of Hitler, the unknown grandson of Hitler. They would probably lie every bit of the way to make you, to lead you off that trail. So if I was quarreling, I, I knew that I had literally Voldemort with me I would not mention Albania. No one would know that I ever ventured there just on the off chance that someone connects those puzzle pieces later down the road and figures out, you know, oh, Albania, that's where we know that Voldemort was. Quirrell's the one who brought, like, no matter what the outcome of this, you're either going to be a hero if Voldemort wins or you're going to want to try and avoid anyone knowing any possible way that you were the one who found him. That's the second time that we've um, drawn a correlation between Voldemort and Hitler in this. And I I really want to explore that more later because I think that especially our generation doesn't have... Was that Hagrid on his flying motorcycle? Oh my god. I think our generation doesn't have a lot of context for crazy dictators, you know, especially especially ones that are so aggressively race-based, right? That's not something that we all the time do. Um, that's something that I want to continue to explore the analogy between Voldemort and Hitler throughout the rest of the series, to be perfectly honest, because especially when it comes to a head in the last book. I, I actually, uh, I want to commend us because I'm really proud. Uh, we've actually made more comparisons to Hitler than we have to Lord of the Rings, which, uh, we always do. And it, it peeves me because I don't think there are books you should compare. So I'm really proud that now we're trying to compare it to, you know, Nazi Germany, which I think is a way more relatable topic. But you can't deny that it is 
painfully obvious that J.K. Rowling was a fan of Lord of the Rings. Uh, I think it's painfully obvious that everybody lives in the shadow of that. I mean, it's painfully obvious You're right. that like, every American author lives in the shadow of... Every like, fantasy author, I yeah, would say. Every, every American author lives in the shadow of Faulkner and Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Every, every, every science fiction author lives in the shadow of Dunes, uh, right? Like, if you're going to write an in-depth world-creating novel, you're going to either go to Tolkien or you're going to go to Dune. Like... So I, I, which can we do a podcast about Dune? Because I fucking love that. No. I've never read Dune. <laughs> right. oh, Mary Payne, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. Together. Well, I just, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were calling on me. No, that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> hey, Mary Payne, your turn is up. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I also think that those authors uh, used very basic elements to make their story, and I think a lot of, um, a lot of epic tales fantasy or otherwise use those same elements so whether they're actually from lord of the rings or something related i think it's just like the good versus evil the magic and non-magic i think it's not necessarily directly from lord of the rings i think it's just lord of the rings took a lot of basic elements that make a really great epic tale I think Tolkien like brought those tropes like forward into the modern age because he was basing them off older stuff. But I actually um, kind of wanted to bring it back to the like xenophobia element because if we go back to like Madame Malkins and when Harry meets Malfoy, it's so obvious from the way that Malfoy is talking that he can't tell that Harry is from a like a Muggle family ostensibly like. And would expect that he would be able to. Because, like, this is also his kind of first time out in the world. Like, he's he's never really met a muggle-born. Like, his family's very insular. So, like, he's talking to Harry and just assuming the way that, like, kids who have been brought up, like, very racist or, like, in very small-minded communities, they just kind of launch in and assume that you already agree with them. And he's doing exactly that. And I think it's really subtle but really brilliant. I think this chapter is a really great glimpse of the way that people grow into those things. So we see Harry um, being a, a real kid in this chapter where he's just excited. He tries to buy a solid gold uh, cauldron. Uh, cauldron. Yeah. It's <laughs> so funny. cute. What a great so detail cute. because I would too if I suddenly well, got that money. And he's never been able to ask for any luxury yeah. before in his life. And, and so then you see Malfoy, like the contrast between him and Malfoy is just like talking shit and just saying stuff. And I think that's a lot of what Malfoy becomes is just someone who tells these stories and acts like he's part of it. Like it, it, it lends itself to the whole my father thing. He's like, my yeah. father told me and I'm a part of it and, and I've just seen so, it my whole life. She does a great job of showing where good grows from and where, where evil grows from. Do you guys remember reading this as a kid, this chapter? Do you remember meeting Malfoy when you were eight or whatever, how old you were? How about the fact that he doesn't give a shit that Harry tries to drop the conversation ending line of my parents are dead <laughs> and Malfoy is kind of like, okay, but were they wizards? <laughs> he uses that line more than once throughout this series. And like, you know, it, it's not a bad way to leave a conversation. <laughs> so, so bad to laugh at. I just remember him. Be- I felt like he was, Harry was pretty brave because to be in this world where you don't really know anything and to even say, he doesn't say much, but when, um, when Malfoy talks about Hagrid, he says, I think, Harry says, I think he's brilliant. Harry said Harry coldly. And that to me as a eight or nine year old kid, however old I was reading this, that was a strong stance to take against, Gryffindor. against this world. That's the first thing he's heard about anyone talking about Hagrid. So that's, he's taking a very strong stance against this world right now. Also, 
I was terrified of making my own transactions until I was like 20 years old. <laughs> so for him to make his first transaction ever, because you know he didn't have money in the muggle world. He wasn't buying gum at the grocery store. This is his first transaction ever. He's getting measured and touched by a witch in a magical place. That There's so much anxiety there. There's a couple fairy tales that tell you Actually, to do exactly not that. It's, it's nerve-wracking. He just goes right in. He's so brave. He's like, I need ropes. Such a Gryffindor. That makes him seem younger, actually. I feel like younger kids are more okay with just trying stuff out and not looking like an idiot. Older kids get worried about that stuff. It's such an 11-year-old thing as well to just get so hype about color-changing ink, of all the things. (laughs) One that actually thing, going back to the whole chapter as a whole, that I think is absolutely beautiful, and I think she does such a great job as, we are introduced, we're like, now we're in the deep end. I mean, like, we, there's no, like, tiptoeing around it. We are exposed to the wizarding world in this chapter to the extreme. And then what's cool is you don't feel lost or confused. Yes, there's topics and subjects being brought up. They're like, oh, what? Like, wizards and, like, monetary. But, like, it's not like, to compare it to something more recent, the Witcher series, where the first three or four episodes, or even, like, uh, even Game of Thrones, where, like, the first two seasons, you're like, what are they even talking about and like people are like oh don't you know about this random battle that happened in a sub book so <laughs> i absolutely love that like she takes these these readers and that's why i think she's such a great children's author and just such a great author in general because she's exposing you a lot you don't know a lot but you are still so compelled and so wanting to go further down that rabbit hole which you're growing oh, with Harry. yeah which is so rare and so random because so many authors they make the mistake of isolating you and making you feel so lost. And I love that about her style. So at the very end of the chapter, one thing that came to my mind is it says the train pulled out of the station. Harry wanted to watch Hagrid until he was out of sight. He rose in his seat and pressed his nose against the window, but he blinked and Hagrid had gone. Not that he couldn't see him anymore. The station had disappeared. Hagrid specifically had gone. That's that active voice. Is is Hagrid doing a rogue, a rogue uh, apparition experiment here? Like... We, we don't think he can apparate. We have no knowledge that he has any ability to do so. He just blinks and Hagrid's gone. That's a, that's a good point. And again, how the fuck is he traveling? I love that she brings it back to a normal muggle setting once again. We've been deeply plunged into this wizarding world. And we're pulling back out to a hamburger at a train station and a goodbye to someone who has shown you kindness. And we end on this like, beautiful little moment of simplicity and Harry's still confused he's starting to accept the weight of his reputation but at the end of the day he's a kid with his first ever father figure just sharing a burger and realizing that his whole life is better now (laughs) and to then see him disappear I feel like has to have been a moment right where we start the chapter where Harry has that, that brief second of doubt of, is this coming back? Is this real? And is this going to last? Wow. Wow. What a way to end the chapter. And it's great because we know that it is real and it only gets better from here or at least less Dursley-ish. So that's a great place to end this chapter. I think that was a really, really bomb-ass conversation. Before we get to plugs, I want to do our first ever listener shout-out! So 
someone who is not obligated by blood or marriage to love us unconditionally has said something nice. Wait, what? I know. So this shout out is from Jordan. She hit us up on Instagram. Her Instagram is at homeschooler book review. There's an S in there. It's homeschoolers book review. And she said, I just wanted to take a second to put in my two cents on the episode about the letters from no one. You were talking about who is the sassy bitch that kept sending the letters and putting them in eggs and stuff. And I think it was McGonagall. The letter is addressed from her, I believe, and she does not like to be ignored. She could, she would do some passive aggressive stunts like that to make sure the muggles gave Harry that letter. Also, P.S., I find myself talking back to your podcast like I'm in that room having the discussion with you. It's the best book club I've ever been a part of. Also, I love the Monty Python intermission music. First of all, I'm sorry to say that I've researched since the first three episodes and using that music is super illegal. Yep, so we're not it. doing that anymore, but oh, it was a great way to hook our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Jordan. We love you. Thank you for those kind words. Um, I don't necessarily, don't necessarily want to dive back into the who are the letters from trait, but I think McGonagall not wanting to be ignored is a really good point. Mm-hmm. She does sign the letters. Um, but also in reading this, I realized that the chapter tells us who the letters are from. They're from no one. It's magic. Don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jordan. If you want to hit us up, we're on Instagram at restricted section pod, or you can send us an email restricted section pod at gmail.com or send an L. My windows are usually open. So let's do some plugs. Who's doing what? That's cool this week. Um, I'm reading, well, this isn't really a plug, but I'm currently reading The Secret Life of Bees, and I don't know if anyone else has read it, but it's really beautiful, mm-hmm. and I super recommend it. Awesome. Cool. I, uh, I want to plug a podcast that I'm a massive fan of. It's called Behind the Bastards. It's by a guy who's a conflict journalist named Robert Evans, who basically researches the biggest grifters and fascists and general assholes of history but he focuses a lot on like 1800s and up so it's more recent history and it's absolutely fascinating and absolutely hysterical it's totally worth checking out uh i would like to plug i am not okay with this currently on netflix i've rewatched it three times since this weekend it's very short <laughs> since this weekend yes it's wednesday it's it's very very short um like it's just one season out but it's like if stranger things had an older lesbian cousin it's oh it's like stranger things meets carrie meets love simon like it's delightful if you're local to the richmond area uh, I'd like to plug Urban Set Bride. I had a really fabulous experience buying my wedding dress there this weekend. Um, everyone was super body positive and friendly, and they worked really well with my budget. And I went home with a blah 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 bomb wedding dress. <laughs> so highly recommend them. They're appointment only. It's so so worth it. Everybody there is lovely. Something I would like to plug is something I think we all watched uh, this Sunday is Velasa Pastor, uh, which is the amazing story of a man coming to terms with his ability to turn into a velociraptor while weighing that with his duty, uh, religious abilities to be a uh, Catholic priest. It's a brilliant, heartwarming story. I'm really surprised it's not getting more uh, award nods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Wait, wait, wait. 
not to be this person, but he can't be Catholic if he's a bastard. <laughs> he's a, I know. He's a he's philosopher. A he's, a, he's a philosopher. He's a priest. Yeah. <laughs> I have two stepkids who are super awesome. They're 11, 13. We started watching Lock and Key, which is really good. It's got all the elements that I love. Fantasy, especially like middle grade fantasy, where um, as an adult, it sort of answers things a little quickly for me. But as a family watching it, it's just awesome. So cool. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I, that's actually, I think it's a graphic novel by yeah, Jeff Hill. I wish I had read that first, actually. No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm sure I'm sure that's great. So my plug this week is a book that I just started reading yesterday. But but I'm fucking loving it. Like, you, sometimes you just know. You know? True. So I started reading Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. And you may have seen the Natalie Portman movie that came out in the last couple of years, but I haven't. Uh, so I'm reading the book and it, it's just, the writing style is so cool. You know how when you get into one of these books um, and it just like, it really just makes you feel a certain way right away without you're even really knowing why. So I'll keep you posted. I'll have finished it by next week because it's only, it's less than 200 pages, but I'm having a great time. So anyone else? Any last thoughts? Everyone feeling great? Are we ready to go to Hogwarts? Yes! yes. Well, we, there's a whole extended, protracted train process before we get there. Don't put down That's the trains. Part of Hogwarts, though. <laughs> All right. We'll get there next week. Hey, hey, hey. Get, get the fuck out of my house. The Restricted Section was created and hosted by me, Christina Kahn, based on the book series by J.K. Rowling. All music by Ryan Kahn. Logo by Michael Hardison. Technical support from Sean Watson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at restrictedsectionpod or shoot us an email at restrictedsectionpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, feelings, complaints, conspiracy theories, or lavish praise. Unlike everyone else, I really haven't been much, so I've been busy with work. So uh, yeah, that's about it for me. Are you plugging work right now? Wow. Yeah.